Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by LucasArts and released on the Amiga, DOS, and Macintosh computer platforms in 1992. We're going to talk about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 55. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. That's probably the best spot to keep up to date with what's happening with the podcast, to interact with me and the other members of the community. The Discord server is awesome. We have a lot of great discussions out there. So that's definitely the best way to join the discussion yourself. Discord is also the home of the Weekend Gaming Challenge. We just completed our Season 0 of the Weekend Gaming Challenge last weekend. This past weekend was an off weekend, though we do have October's monthly gaming challenges, which will contribute to Season 1's point totals. Season 1 begins next weekend, so keep an eye out for that. There are a ton of great challenges out there. All of the challenges for October were submitted by members of the community, which is a lot of fun, <laughs> actually a lot of fun. We're probably going to continue to do that moving into the future, which is have community-related challenges for the monthly challenges, and then I'll continue to maintain the weekly challenges as part of our seasons. Once again, just a lot of fun out there. I do encourage you all to join. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon as well. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, Patreon is where it's at. We have a new bi-weekly podcast episode that's Patreon exclusive. That happens every other week. This upcoming Wednesday is when our next episode releases. And this one is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be focused on the Nintendo DS game Retro Game Challenge, which is kind of the most retro kind of game that I've played that isn't actually a retro game. It is actually pretty darn awesome. We're going to talk all about that on our Patreon episode. So if you're interested in that and a bunch of other episodes and exclusive blog posts and a special channel out on Discord, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. These are the members of the Patreon community that are contributing at the Pantheon level. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show, and thank you all for supporting the show, whether it's monetarily or simply by listening on a regular basis. I truly appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or rating to every game. But we do look at every game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. 
And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It is pretty much my highest recommendation. These are the certifiable classics. You owe it to yourself to play these games. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, and you will almost definitely have a good time, especially if you have nostalgia for the genre in which the game lives. By all means, you will enjoy yourself. These are still awesome experiences. They are not quite Pantheon level, but that doesn't mean that they're not awesome in their own right. You should still play these today. Just beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They've either aged a bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the general population. They just are not good enough to warrant that level of recommendation to the broad gaming community. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by LucasArts and released on a bunch of different computer platforms, primarily the Amiga, DOS, and Macintosh computer platforms back in 1992. Before we can talk about Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, we have to talk about Indiana Jones himself, one of the most famous archaeologists to ever don a leather jacket and fedora. I'm going to guess that many people know who Indiana Jones is, as he's been a part of pop culture since the 1980s, with the latest and possibly final movie release in the series happening just a few months ago earlier this year. But regardless, I do think the context here is important, because Indiana Jones, despite originating in cinema, has had a pretty profound impact on the entire world, including the video and computer game industry. So our journey starts in 1973, which is when Hollywood director and storyteller George Lucas sat down to begin working on what he believed would be one of his next movies. Today, George Lucas is pretty much a household name, despite the fact that LucasArts and LucasFilm are both now owned entirely by Disney. Back in 1973, though, 
Lucas was still an up-and-coming director, and it was still years before Star Wars would release and catapult him into rock star territory. Lucas, at the time, was enthralled with the movie serials of the 1930s and 1940s, and he was looking to recreate a similar kind of feel, albeit in a longer-form movie format. Movie serials, by the way, for those who may not know, were a form of cinema where rather than release a full-length film with a contained story, movie studios would release a series of weekly chapters where the story would continue from week to week. You can almost think about movie serials as the equivalent of many television shows today, where a season of a given show progresses a single story over the course of several episodes. Movie serials were the same thing, except they were typically shorter than modern television episodes, and they were shown exclusively in movie theaters, primarily because televisions at the time had just begun to make their way into homes. If you were going to watch something, rather than listen to the radio, movie theaters were the only way to do that. Anyway, Lucas wanted to capture that old-timey feel, and he wanted to create an adventure that would feel nostalgic while still being modern in terms of current cinematic storytelling. That goal would eventually result in Lucas writing The Adventure of Indiana Smith? With expectations that production on the film would begin pretty quickly after the story was written. As is often the case, though, Hollywood had other intentions, and the adventure of Indiana Smith never got off the ground. So Lucas decided to shelve the project while he focused on the cinematic space opera that would eventually take the world by storm, which is, of course, Star Wars. And with the release of Star Wars in 1977, any possible anonymity or downtime Lucas hoped to continue enjoying pretty much evaporated, as almost overnight he changed the entire landscape of cinema. In an attempt to escape from all of the press and attention, he took a vacation in Maui, and conveniently, another rock star director and personal friend of Lucas's, Steven Spielberg, was also on vacation at Maui in the same time. Spielberg had catapulted to superstardom a couple of years prior, with the release of the very first summer blockbuster Jaws, and in 1977, his personal vacation was to similarly escape the attention that his latest film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was receiving. As both directors attempted to de-stress from the constant attention of the Hollywood spotlight, they both sat down and began to talk about future movie ideas, and it was during one of those discussions that Spielberg mentioned his intention to direct a James Bond film. Lucas, though, had a different idea, something that he thought was way better than James Bond. So, he told Spielberg all about the adventure of Indiana Smith where a rugged 1930s-era hero would go on a world-spanning adventure in search of a priceless artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, all the while being chased by evil Nazi soldiers who wanted to use the artifact for their own nefarious schemes. Spielberg loved the idea, and he and Lucas decided to jointly collaborate on taking that story to the silver screen, albeit with a main character who had a slightly altered name. It was that joint collaboration that would eventually result in the creation of Indiana Jones and the release of the first film in the series, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in 1981. Raiders of the Lost Ark was incredibly well-received when it was released, capturing the imagination of moviegoers around the world and beginning what would eventually become a five-movie franchise with a television series spin-off, a now-retired stunt show at Walt Disney World, and countless licensed and related games. Lucas and Spielberg would continue collaborating on future Indiana Jones movies, with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom releasing in 1984, followed by Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989. 
And as we discussed during our episode on The Dig several months ago, it would be Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade that would bridge the gap between the cinema and the very first Indiana Jones point-and-click adventure game. It turns out that in addition to being a prolific Hollywood director, Steven Spielberg was also an avid video game enthusiast, having discovered the wonders of arcades in the 1970s. By the same token, George Lucas was always looking at ways to expand his media empire, which would eventually result in the creation of an interactive entertainment division within Lucas's overall company structure. This company would initially be known as Lucasfilm Games, before later being rechristened as the company almost every adventure gamer around the world likely recognizes, LucasArts. With Lucas owning an interactive entertainment division, Spielberg being a lifelong gamer, and the two collaborating on hit films that were pretty much tailor-made for video and computer game adaptations, it is not a surprise that all of those elements would eventually coalesce into the creation of a joint venture, a game that would combine Spielberg's and Lucas's creative prowess with the expertise of Lucasfilm games. It was that joint venture that would eventually result in the creation of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the graphic adventure. When work began on the adventure game version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lucasfilm Games decided to assign Ron Gilbert, Noah Falstein, and David Fox as the core designers responsible to bring the game to market. The three worked with the rest of the team, as well as Steven Spielberg and George Lucas themselves, to create a title that would hold true to the indie formula while at the same time providing players with a meaningful, interactive adventure experience. The team did, in fact, expand on certain scenes beyond what the film would depict. And interestingly, those new scenes were actually developed jointly with Spielberg and Lucas themselves. Like I just mentioned, Steven Spielberg had been an avid gamer since 1974. This was a chance for him to get involved in the hobby he enjoyed, working on a project he was passionate about. The end result was an undeniable success, with many publications awarding the title stellar reviews en route to being added to many gamers' best games of all time list. With the success of the adventure game version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it is not surprising that there would be a desire to make another adventure game in the Indiana Jones universe. The only issue was, there wasn't a new film in the pipeline for the team to adapt. Sure, they could have gone back and tried to make a game based on one of Indy's prior two adventures, but that felt like it would be a pure cash grab, and the team had loftier artistic goals than that. Instead, LucasArts decided to create a brand new adventure that wouldn't be based on any of Indy's prior adventures. At the same time, though, they wanted the game to feel like a cinematic Indiana Jones experience. In an attempt to bridge that gap, LucasArts felt the need to bring fresh perspectives into the company, and it was that search for new viewpoints that resulted in a man named Hal Barwood being hired in 1990. The primary source of Barwood's experience at the time was not in game development, but was rather in the film industry. Barwood had always had a love of cinema, and even from a very young age, the movie theater experience was something that Barwood enjoyed. His father, in fact, ran a local movie theater, which gave Barwood countless opportunities to foster his cinematic interests. Those interests would continue to flourish until eventually Barwood decided to attend the University of Southern California's School of Cinema Television, which is where he developed a friendship with none other than George Lucas. This relationship would help land Barwood his first job on a Hollywood theatrical release, as he would end up working with George Lucas as an effects animator on the film THX 1138 in 1971. While that film wouldn't really achieve any degree of success at the time, it was a foot in the door to Hollywood, and Barwood was excited about what the future would hold. 
The pivotal moment in Barwood's Hollywood career, though, would be when he was hired to co-write the screenplay for the first theatrical release of another Hollywood director, that being Steven Spielberg. That film, The Sugarland Express, would, similar to THX 1138, not make a ton of money at the box office. But despite that lack of financial success, Barwood's talent was at full display, as he, along with co-writers Spielberg and Matthew Robbins, would win the award for Best Original Screenplay at the 1974 Cannes Film Festival. Barwood and Robbins would continue to collaborate on a number of other screenplays over the years, including Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which they both ended up rewriting when the initial script proved inadequate. These collaborations would continue, eventually resulting in the release of the fantasy film Dragon Slayer in 1981, which Matthew Robbins would direct, in addition to co-writing the screenplay with Barwood. It was the release of Dragon Slayer that would inspire Barwood to pursue a new passion, that being the creation of video games, and he set out to shift careers and begin doing just that. While Barwood never achieved much success as an independent game designer, he did end up creating two games for the Apple II computer platform, only one of which, a miniature railroad model simulator called Binary Gauge, was actually released for sale. But despite his amateur game design work not exactly setting the world on fire, his prior work on films, coupled with his desire to create worthwhile gaming experiences, as well as his relationships with both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, would eventually lead to being hired into LucasArts in 1990, and his first assignment would be a big one. He would be the person responsible for creating the sequel to the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade point-and-click adventure game. Initially, the thought inside LucasArts was that Barwood would simply take a previously considered Indiana Jones movie idea and develop a game around that concept. Specifically, the idea that the team was focused on was based on a script originally written by eventual Home Alone and Harry Potter director Chris Columbus as a pitch for the third Indiana Jones film. That script focused on Chinese mythology and the story of the Monkey King, a mythical character introduced in the 16th century Chinese novel Journey to the West, and would have involved Indiana Jones going on yet another world-spanning adventure, including battling a ghost in Scotland, searching for Chinese artifacts across the globe, and eventually discovering the Fountain of Youth in Africa. That concept, though, wasn't considered good enough for a film version of Indiana Jones, but under Hal Barwood's direction, the hope was that he'd be able to turn it into something that would be worthwhile for an adventure game. There was only one problem. When Barwood reviewed the script and the general concept, he quickly came to the same realization as both Spielberg and Lucas had previously, which was, the story was just not good enough to be usable for a worthwhile experience. So instead, Barwood requested an opportunity to create an entirely original story in the Indiana Jones universe, one that would have no direct ties to any of the cinematic releases or pitches to date. He enlisted assistance from Noah Faustine, the veteran LucasArts game designer who had recently worked on the adventure game version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And together, Faustine and Barwood set off on their own adventure, one that would eventually culminate in the creation of Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis. With Barwood and Falstein now jointly working on the title, the question was, what would the new game's central plot device be? Generally speaking, Indiana Jones films and related media have always focused on storylines that mixed historical and mythological stories with supernatural occurrences, and Barwood and Falstein knew they needed to continue this tradition when they set out to make their new game. So they both visited the Skywalker Ranch Library to see what ideas they could come up with. 
Skywalker Ranch, by the way, was the home base of operations for George Lucas and a number of his various production companies, including LucasArts. Anyway, while at the Skywalker Ranch Library, Barwood and Falstein went through a variety of books as they were brainstorming concepts, eventually settling on the mystery of Atlantis, the fabled city from Greek mythology that mysteriously disappeared from the face of the Earth thousands of years ago. Originally written about by Greek philosopher Plato, Atlantis was a strong naval empire who had aspirations to conquer most of the known world, which at the time of its writing meant portions of Europe and Asia. Eventually, their attack was repelled by the rival city-state Athens, and as a result of their failed conquest and immoral behavior, the island fell out of favor with the gods, resulting in a number of earthquakes that over a period of one day sank the island entirely, never to be heard from again. Depending on what interpretation you read, Atlantis is represented in a variety of ways, either being viewed as a completely fictional tale meant to promote philosophical discussion, a mythological seat of power where the god Poseidon ruled the seas, or a real-world location where a technologically advanced society was punished for their hubris by being destroyed, either because they went too far and destroyed themselves, or because the reigning deities of the time believed that the culture was attempting to breach the realm of godhood and needed, instead, to be eliminated. This kind of story, where there's a bit of a mix between history and the supernatural, was ripe for an Indiana Jones experience, which is exactly why Barwood and Falstein decided to use Atlantis as the plot device for their new game. So, they had a general concept to start working on. Now, they actually had to create the game. Falstein and Barwood both worked on sketching out the game's general outline, which Barwood then took and, using his prior screenwriting experience, developed the outline into a full-length script and story, choosing to present a concept of Atlantis based on alien-like technology, which would, in turn, be the basis for a number of puzzles included in the game. Now, something entirely unique, and that very few if any adventure games were implementing around this time, was the concept of multiple paths through the story. And here, Noah Falstein had a brilliant idea. What if the game could provide a different experience depending on how the player wanted to tackle the game's challenges? Rather than have a single path through the story, Falstein thought that the game would be improved and be more replayable if there were multiple paths through the narrative. So he came up with a concept for three distinct paths that players could choose between. Individuals who wanted something akin to a traditional Indiana Jones adventure might choose the partner option, where Indiana Jones and his companion, Sophia Hapgood, would make their way through the game together, using both of their unique talents to tackle the puzzles that players might encounter. Other players might want a more cerebral experience, so they might choose the wits option, where they'd be able to play the game as a solo Indiana Jones adventure, where only Indy's own cunning could save the day. And people who wanted to be masochistic and torture themselves could choose the fists option, which imbued the game with many more direct action sequences that involved Indy punching a bunch of bad guys over and over again, hopefully without getting punched too much himself. Note that while I'm being a bit cheeky with that whole you're a masochist if you pick the fists option, it's also kind of true. Adventure games do not typically use engines that support the best action gameplay mechanics. I do always find it interesting when developers attempt to add some additional features to their adventure games, but in this case, I don't know that I can recall a point-and-click adventure title that really did action sequences right. It was a bold choice, I'm just not sure it was necessarily a wise one. Anyway, the fact that there were three paths through the game was incredibly innovative, and while only the second act of the experience would truly differ from playthrough to playthrough, 
I still enjoyed the fact that such variety and replayability was included in the game. So, because this was a point-and-click LucasArts adventure title in the early 90s, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that it would be created for the SCUM engine, which stood for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. We've talked about the SCUM engine before in great detail, in particular during our episode in Maniac Mansion, so I'm not going to rehash all of that here. But, just as a bit of a refresher... The Scum Engine was an effort by Ron Gilbert to address the fact that adventure titles in the mid-80s, despite beginning to use graphical interfaces, still oftentimes used text parser inputs for navigating a game world. In order for this kind of text-driven input to work, players would have to guess exactly what words the game was expecting in order to perform a certain action, and if you couldn't guess a keyword in the game's vocabulary, good luck trying to complete that game. The Scum Engine addressed this issue by presenting a purely mouse-driven interface to the player, where game commands could be selected by a list of verbs and objects displayed on the screen, which took away any guesswork as to what was possible within a given game's framework. This served to streamline the act of playing adventure titles, and as a result would become a staple of almost all LucasArts adventure games made in the late 80s through the mid-90s. For Fate of Atlantis, the Scum engine would continue to be refined, with the overall verb list simplified to nine essential commands. Similar to Monkey Island, Fate of Atlantis would include a suggested command depending on what object or item you'd be attempting to interact with, accessible by clicking the right mouse button on the object. So, for example, if you moused over a person, you didn't have to go and actively click on Talk To. The game knew that the standard behavior for interacting with a person was to talk to them, so the Talk To command would be highlighted, allowing you to simply press the right mouse button to execute that action. One enhancement, though, which I thought was really unique, had to do with the concept of dark spaces and the limited visibility you might have in those dark spaces. In real life, if you enter a darkened room, you'll likely not see much, if any, of your surrounding environment. Eventually, though, your pupils dilate, allowing more light, even if faint, to enter your eyes, which in turn allows you to begin seeing in the dark, so to speak. This is why, by the way, if you suddenly are exposed to bright light after being in a dark space, it can sometimes be overwhelming. Your eyes are not expecting a flood of light after being reconditioned to let in the scant light in a darkened room. So when you get hit with that light, too much enters your eyes, which then causes an almost involuntary reaction to either squint or cover your eyes completely. Anyway, human physiology aside, the SCUM engine was enhanced to allow that same physiological phenomenon to be simulated in the game, as several scenes would require Indy to be placed in dark environments, and over a period of a minute or two, you'd eventually go from not being able to see anything to instead being able to see a rough outline of the location you're in. It is a super small touch, but one that was incredibly clever to implement from my perspective. Speaking of those scenes, the act of creating the game world would fall to a series of artists across the LucasArts team, most of whom used computers to create the locations and backgrounds that would appear in the game. There were, however, a small number of environments that were first hand-drawn in pencil and later scanned into a computer to be digitized. This digitization process was also used to capture character movement, which were all created using a process called rotoscoping. I actually kind of find it funny to talk about rotoscoping today because back a few months ago, it felt like we couldn't have a discussion about a game without talking about rotoscoping. But fast forward to today, and it's been a bit of time since we last touched on the concept, so let me explain it just a little bit. Rotoscoping is a technique where real-world film performance is turned into usable animation frames, which involves taking that film and drawing over it to create an animated sequence, oftentimes requiring frame-by-frame -frame attention. 
If you've ever seen any old Disney movies where the movements look almost too lifelike, that's pretty much going to be an example of rotoscoping. And you can think of any princess ball scene from any of the Disney classic filmography. That is almost certainly going to be rotoscoping at work. Rotoscoping was also used, by the way, to create the lightsaber effects in the original Star Wars film, which served to turn an ordinary wooden stick waved around by Mark Hamill into a deadly laser sword capable of slicing objects in half with the flick of a wrist. For Fate of Atlantis, Indiana Jones and Sophia Hapgood were both animated using rotoscoping, with Steve Purcell, the creator of the Sam and Max media franchise, lending his movements to the performance of Indiana Jones, while Colette Michaud, another LucasArts designer, performed the movements for Sophia. Interestingly, Purcell and Michaud would eventually marry each other as they were both working on Sam and Max Hit the Road a couple of years later. Putting that love story aside, though, and turning our attention to music, Fate of Atlantis' soundtrack would be composed by an all-star team of LucasArts composers, including Clint Bajakian, Peter McConnell, and Michael Land. Now, when I say all-star team, I truly mean it. Here, here is a short list of some of the games these three have composed for. You've got The Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, Day of the Tentacle, Star Wars Rebel Assault 1 and 2, Full Throttle, The Dig, Grim Fandango, Outlaws, Star Wars, Dark Forces, Star Wars X-Wing, Sam and Max Hit the Road, and, well, you get the idea. All told, you would be hard-pressed to find a LucasArts game from the 90s that these guys didn't contribute to, and for Fate of Atlantis, they would be asked to leverage the iconic Indiana Jones film themes by John Williams, while at the same time composing music specifically for Fate of Atlantis. That music would be played using the iMuse system, which Michael Land and Peter McConnell had created a year or so prior. We've talked about the iMuse system before, but just to give a refresher, iMuse allowed a game's soundtrack to be composed on the fly, based on the actions of the player rather than relying on pre-recorded musical tracks that would simply start or stop depending on a player's location. The best way to think of this is like a movie soundtrack. In most movies, the soundtrack that plays is synchronized perfectly with the action on the screen. In many games of the late 80s and early 90s, musical tracks would play, but they wouldn't really change dynamically based on what actions the player was taking. Sure, a given track might fade in or out if a scene changed, but there was little to no cohesion to the overall musical soundtrack. The iMuse system was designed so that individual pieces of music would be composed, which could then be used in different combinations to create a dynamic, ever-changing soundtrack, just like what you would experience when watching a film. Themes would morph, instruments would come into and out of focus, and tempos and melodies would shift, all in time with the action on the screen rather than being static music tracks. Besides the obvious benefit of having music tailor-made for each player's specific playthrough, the IMU system also was used to mask some of the shortcomings associated with the massive variety in computing speed and power around this time. Unlike today, where most games were able to support a wide range of performance targets without breaking, back in the earlier days of computer gaming, performance could vary wildly. If you had a really slow machine, then a game might chug along at only a few frames per second, or load times might be exceedingly long. That, however, isn't all that different than today, as running a graphically demanding game on a subpar machine would produce similar behavior. The difference is, the opposite would also be true, where if you had a really fast machine, some games developed around this time would run way too fast, sometimes even becoming entirely unplayable. While the IMU system couldn't make an unplayable game playable, it could make sure that whenever music played, it kept up with a user's computer, whether slower, on target, or faster than the designers intended. 
Beyond the musical compositions for the game, voice acting would also play a major role in the experience, at least as far as the CD-ROM version of the game was concerned. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis was one of those titles that was released right around when CD-ROMs were becoming a big deal, and while the original version of Fate of Atlantis would ship on a series of floppy disks, a full talkie version on CD-ROM would release later, with every character in the game fully voiced using trained voice actors from radio and television. We'll talk more about my opinions around the voice acting in the game in a little bit, but suffice it to say, LucasArts did not phone it in when it came time to record dialogue for the game. Eventually, after nearly two years in development, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis would be released in June of 1992 for the Amiga, DOS, and Macintosh computer platforms. Almost instantaneously, the game became a hit, with critics and players alike widely praising the game's story, puzzles, graphics, music, and innovative multi-path storyline. It would be nominated for and win Adventure Game of the Year for many publications, and would later be recognized by many as one of the best adventure games of all time. Even commercially, Indiana Jones was a success, as it sold over 1 million copies in its lifetime, which according to co-creator Noah Falstein, makes it the best-selling LucasArts adventure of all time. With such success and critical acclaim, you might think that a sequel would be inevitable, and in fact, that's exactly what LucasArts thought too, so work began on a proposed follow-up story, entitled Indiana Jones and the Iron Phoenix. Work progressed on the title for 15 months, until it was unfortunately cancelled by LucasArts, driven primarily by the game's focus on neo-Nazism, which would have made it a pretty tough sell in Germany. Interestingly, and I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but Germany is one of the bigger adventure game markets in the world, and there was real concern that if the German public wouldn't resonate with the subject matter of the game, then the game might not sell nearly as well as it would have needed to to recover the development costs. So, LucasArts cancelled the title though the story would eventually release as a comic book series a couple years later. While there would never be any direct adventure game follow-up to Fate of Atlantis, Indiana Jones as a media franchise would continue to have a legacy well beyond the game's release. Other than the movies, which, like we talked about, are still going strong today, you also had a number of more action-oriented Indiana Jones titles that released over the years, not to mention its heavy influence on both Tomb Raider and the Uncharted series. LucasArts as a company would continue to cement its legacy as one of the premier adventure game developers in the world, with future releases affirming the fact that LucasArts was filled with talented game designers, storytellers, artists, and musicians. As many likely know, LucasArts was purchased by Disney several years ago, and while they haven't yet made any efforts to rekindle the Indiana Jones franchise in adventure game form, there is supposedly a new Indiana Jones game in the works. Details are still few and far between, but I'm hopeful that we see the man in the hat return to our screens in playable form at some point in the future. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis is a truly classic title from a famously classic adventure game developer. It represents a distillation of all of the traits and qualities that have endeared Indiana Jones to people around the world, and as such is perhaps one of the more recognizable adventure games ever created. You may not have been a computer gamer in the 90s, but if you saw the Fate of Atlantis box on a store shelf, there was no way you wouldn't know it was Indiana Jones, and that by itself made it a big deal. While nobody truly knows what the future holds for Indiana Jones, we can all take comfort in knowing that even if he never returns to another point-and-click adventure title, our collective memories of Fate of Atlantis, much like anyone who takes a sip of water from the Holy Grail, will truly live on forever. 
We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released back in 1992, over 30 years ago. So Fate of Atlantis is a fairly typical early 90s LucasArts point-and-click adventure title, which means it has a similar look and feel to many of LucasArts' other games. Like we talked about, this is a scum engine game, which means navigation around the game world, using items, clicking hotspots, and all interaction is accomplished using your mouse exclusively. A number of action verbs appear on the screen, and through selecting those actions and combining them with objects, hotspots, and characters, you create commands that the game engine will execute. So, at least as far as the general gameplay of the title, you're going to get a familiar LucasArts experience. That's not to say that there aren't unique aspects to the game, though. And in fact, there are a number of ways that Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis distinguishes itself from the rest of LucasArts' catalog. For one, the game's locales are truly world-spanning, which was designed to mimic the feel of an Indiana Jones movie. You know how in many games you have some sort of overworld map that allows you to travel from location to location? In most games, that map consists of a series of distanced, but relatively close locales. Think about a game like The Secret of Monkey Island. You'd have a map of the island, and you can go all around the island, but otherwise each location is defined with similar theming. In Fate of Atlantis, the locations you visit are spread all across the world, so your map in this instance is actually a map of a portion of the Earth. When you travel, you're choosing between places like New York, Monte Carlo, the Azores, and Crete, not simply different buildings in a similar geographic area. Now, I'm not saying this to disparage adventure games with less broad geographical coverage, but I do want to highlight that with Fate of Atlantis, the location diversity meant that each specific spot had to be designed in such a way that it felt natural for the location you were visiting, which means the theming for each and every area was visually distinct. Stylistically, every scene felt like they belonged, but the diversity in the environments was something that not many adventure games can match, and I thought the team did a great job with that aspect of the game. Another nice touch was the fact that traveling from location to location used a map-flight kind of interface that was pretty much a direct copy from the Indiana Jones films, which I thought really helped to sell this as an Indiana Jones experience. As you go from location to location, you'll encounter a number of puzzles to complete, and in a bit of a departure from many adventure games, multiple puzzles in Fate of Atlantis might be solvable by using the same item. In a lot of games, once you use an item, it disappears from your inventory. Not so in Fate of Atlantis, at least not in all instances. In fact, some of the game's later puzzles require you to remember to pick up some already used items from previous puzzles, which, if you weren't expecting that, could lead to a bit of backtracking. We'll talk more about some of that in a little bit. The good thing, though, is that there are no dead ends in the game, meaning even if you don't realize you need to pick up an item to progress, you're never blocked off from going back for the item which means it's pretty much impossible to break the game. Though, I will say that I did hit a bug late in the game that required me to reload a saved game. There was a raft in a certain late-game locale, and it became stuck in a position that it wouldn't allow me to use it, which effectively stranded me. Not a huge deal at all, but just something to mention. Perhaps the biggest way Fate of Atlantis deviates from its peers, though, is through the integration of three different paths through the middle part of the game, which are fairly different from one another, so much so that certain rooms and locations will only appear in a single path. Which means, to experience the full extent of the game, you'd have to play through it three times. For the purposes of this episode of the podcast, I played through the team path, which meant that Sophia and Indy were traipsing around the world together. 
I felt like this was the canon option, so to speak, so I figured that that would be the path that I would go down. I did previously play the Wits Path, which has some more challenging puzzles in it, though I have never personally played the Fists Path, simply because fighting in this game is just not all that great. And speaking of that fighting, yes, this game does in fact allow you to fight certain enemies in the game, though from my perspective, these fights are a bit of a bore and a chore. The Scum Engine is not a fighting game engine, and trying to pigeonhole sequences into the game despite being thematically relevant for an Indiana Jones experience, simply feels out of place in a point-and-click adventure. Fighting and -and point-and-click games just really don't mix that well from my perspective. Regardless, at the end of the day, the majority of the gameplay is pure adventure gaming goodness, and that I can certainly appreciate. Before we move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the title, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, as you all know, I love looking at the boxes for these games. I love looking at the artwork. I love looking at how different companies would market their titles by reading the back of the box. Because a lot of times around this era, you didn't always have the ability to know what you were buying before you actually went to a store and bought it. Sure, we'd have some magazines in certain instances, but we didn't have YouTube or gameplay videos we'd be able to look up or a bunch of different reviews we'd be able to cross-reference. We basically made a lot of our buying decisions in the store in real time, based on what the box looked like and what the company wrote on the back of the box. So, for Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, the back of the box says, The man with the hat is back in his greatest adventure yet. 1939, the eve of World War II. Nazi agents are about to get their hands on a weapon more dangerous than the atom bomb. Only Indy can stop them before they unleash the deadly secret that sank Atlantis. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. There's a bunch of different screenshots here. It says, Play bumper cars with Gestapo kidnappers. Repair an ancient doomsday machine carefully. Soar across the vast Sahara in search of mysterious ruins. Capture a Nazi sub and find Atlantis' secret airlock. And then there are some other features here. Point and click your way through fist fights, puzzles, balloon rides, car chases, and indie one-liners. Experience over 200 spectacular locations. Hear LucasArts' exclusive iMuse. Create a musical score that follows your every move. And play and replay. Three unique challenging paths to vanquish the Reich. So I would have to say the back of the box does an amazing job of presenting Fate of Atlantis as something that I would want to play. Absolutely. It looked great. It sounded great. The way they described it, and they even have a picture of Indiana Jones in the back of the box. I don't think it's really Harrison Ford, just taking a look at that picture. But it looks like Indiana Jones. Maybe it was. Maybe it was Harrison. I don't know. Anyway. The box did an amazing job of setting up the experience. One thing I did find interesting is that they called attention to the iMuse system on the actual box for Fate of Atlantis. iMuse is one of those things, it's kind of like a game engine. You don't always get a lot of attention on that on the box art or on the boxes of that time. I find it interesting that they actually called attention to iMuse for Fate of Atlantis. We are now going to move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics in Fate of Atlantis look great, with awesome detail in every single scene and for every single character. 
I loved the diversity of the environmental design in the game, and I thought the designers did a great job of making it fairly obvious which objects or hotspots in a given scene were important, which is a critical piece in an adventure game feeling like an adventure and not simply a pixel hunt. I also really enjoyed the lighting in the game, where after you spend a certain period of time in a darkened environment, your eyes adjust, so to speak, and you can then see a bit clearer. I just thought that was an awesome touch, and I still remember being blown away the first time I played the game years ago when that happened. It was unlike anything I had seen before, and while I know that it's a fairly primitive effect by today's standards, the fact that the designers even thought about this as a feature back in the early 90s is a testament to the creativity and care that they used when crafting this experience. Animations similarly all look great, likely because the rotoscope movement provided a strong foundation on which to build out the various animations and scenes. I honestly don't have any complaints about the graphics. I thought the game looked amazing. Moving on to the sound and music, the soundtrack for Fate of Atlantis is simply awesome, with a great mix of original compositions which feel right at home in the Indiana Jones universe, as well as an appropriate use of John Williams' iconic themes. I particularly loved how the indie theme would begin playing in certain scenes once certain actions were taken, which I thought made it feel incredibly similar to indie cinematic exploits. The IMU system did a stellar job in responding to my specific gameplay, and I never hit a situation where I thought the music didn't match the action beat for beat. If I had one minor complaint, it's that certain sound options are less impactful than others, with the MT32 rendition of the soundtrack pretty much the standard to beat. That's not to say that you won't have a good auditory experience if you don't have an MT32 or a solid MT32 emulator. It's just that there's a pretty wide gap between the lesser sound technologies like AdLib and the MT32 for this title, which, because much of the music is designed to sound like its cinematic counterpart, can sometimes stick out a bit, or at least it's more noticeable than many other adventure games where the soundtrack doesn't have a pre-existing orchestral musical memory to live up to. I do also want to mention that the voice acting in the game, at least for the CD-ROM version, for the most part was pretty good. Most characters had quality voice acting, though there were some lines that seemed like they weren't exactly delivered the way I interpreted the written text, meaning some lines were simply read rather than exclaimed, just as an example. The other thing to mention is, because of the sheer variety and geographic locations that the game allows you to visit, there are also a huge number of regional accents at play throughout the game. While I wouldn't call any accent distracting, Many times these characters took on more of a cartoon acting quality as opposed to more nuanced performance. If you were talking to a German, as an example, he was going to have a super heavy over-the-top German accent. If this were a game like Day of the Tentacle or more of the zany LucasArts games, then I would have no complaints. But Indiana Jones is a more grounded, real-world kind of experience. And with that aspect in mind, not all of the voice acting worked for me. I'm not saying the acting was poor, because I don't believe it was. I'm just saying I would have preferred a bit less of a caricature for each character. Moving on to the narrative and story. In Fate of Atlantis, you play as legendary adventurer and archaeologist Indiana Jones in his latest world-spanning adventure. What starts as a simple artifact recovery mission in Indy's local university, Barnett College, evolves into a dramatic race to save the world, with a power-hungry Nazi scientist and his soldier henchmen searching for artifacts from the legendary lost continent of Atlantis. 
the Nazis believe that these artifacts are capable of bestowing their wielder with unlimited power. And it's up to you, as Indiana Jones, to stop these evildoers from resurrecting the secrets of a long-forgotten civilization whose experiments and technology are far too dangerous to unleash on the modern world. Along with your companion Sophia Hapgood, you'll explore exotic locales, solve ancient puzzles, engage in hand-to-hand combat, and maybe, just maybe, discover the true fate of Atlantis. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. The story is freaking awesome. Fate of Atlantis feels 100%, no, 1000% like an Indiana Jones film. And as a huge fan of those cinematic triumphs, this story grabbed me from the beginning and just didn't let go. Every aspect of the narrative, from needing to decipher the ancient clues left behind by Greek philosophers, to exploring the variety of locations around the world that all contributed historical perspective to the story, all the way to the game's conclusion, it all worked amazingly. As you all know, I am a huge fan of adventure titles, and one of the core components of quality adventure games is the story. And let me tell you, Fate of Atlantis delivers. Moving on to the playability and controls, there's not really a ton to talk about from a control perspective that we haven't already discussed, since adventure games in general are not necessarily the most complex games out there, at least in terms of control schemes. You use your mouse to navigate and explore the game world, interact with objects, solve puzzles, and speak with characters, all of which control exactly like what you would expect from a scum-based LucasArts adventure title. The only aspect to really call any attention to is the fact that the game does have a few action sequences where you end up having to fight a variety of enemies. When these scenes pop up, you're presented with a power meter and a life bar, as is your opponent, and you have to time your strikes to deplete your enemy's life before he beats you. Otherwise, it's potentially game over. I will admit, I am not the biggest fan of adventure games adding in action sequences like this, because most of the time, adventure game engines aren't capable of delivering quality action experiences. They're just not designed for that. The Scum engine, and Fate of Atlantis by extension, is no different. I was not really keen on these sequences at all, and I felt like they were mostly unnecessary. I actually prefer the opening sequence of the game, where Indy gets into a fight with an adversary as part of a cutscene of sorts. That felt more Indiana Jones-ish to me than the controllable action sequences. Yes, that's right. I would rather watch a fight than control a fight using the Scum engine. From my perspective, it's just not that great. Beyond those less-than-stellar fight mechanics, almost the entire game plays just like a modern adventure title, which means there's really nothing here that would make you feel like you were playing any sort of retro title. That being said, I do have a few critiques that I felt could have been done better, and ultimately dragged down the experience a little bit. I'm going to start with a design decision that I both thought was ingenious, but also felt was cumbersome and that was the fact that certain items could be used to solve multiple puzzles throughout the game. I appreciated the fact that items could be used in a variety of ways, as it helped to keep the puzzles a bit more challenging. Most of the time, when you pick up an object, you can kind of figure out where that object is going to be used, and once it's used, it usually gets removed from your inventory. This makes games streamlined, but can in some instances result in less of a challenge. With Fate of Atlantis, you never know when you might need a given object, which is good and helps maintain a sense of open-endedness in the gameplay and puzzles. Where it becomes cumbersome, however, is when you don't realize you may need an object later in the game, and you simply leave a key item in place only to have to backtrack to retrieve it later on. 
I appreciate the fact that you can't get yourself into a dead-end situation. So being able to actually retrieve something you left behind is still a dramatically better solution than what early Sierra titles employed, which was effectively a shrug of the shoulders and a sucks-to-be-you kind of response. And for the most part, the backtracking in Fate of Atlantis isn't all that bad, except in one section of the game, which is where, for me, the game stops being a completely fun, engaging experience and instead becomes a bit of a slog. I am talking, of course, about the very final section of the game, which is when you have an opportunity to explore Atlantis. I am going to avoid spoilers wherever possible, but I do have to describe some late-game areas in order to explain why Atlantis, from my perspective, was designed more poorly than the rest of the game. So, you get to Atlantis after having an incredible time exploring the world and uncovering various ancient secrets and artifacts, and you just know the game is nearing its climax. You enter Atlantis and, rather than be presented by an area filled with grandeur, you're instead presented with a maze. Now, in all fairness, this isn't like the really horrible mazes that many games used. Like Seventh Guest as an example. The maze in that game? Oh my god. It deserves a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records as being the first truly digital torture device. The maze in Fane of Atlantis isn't as bad in terms of figuring out where to go but where it falls apart is in the amount of time it takes to explore the numerous rooms strewn about the maze's passages, some of which serve a purpose, while others are simply there to aid environmental story building. Which would be fine if the environment was actually interesting, which it is not. Making navigation worse is the fact that in every screen of the maze, you have patrolling guards, who if you get too close to one, will start a fight sequence, which, like we talked about, will utilize the awful fight controls. Luckily, you can escape from any fight by simply choosing a dialogue option to run away, but that doesn't stop the fact that you have to listen to a one-liner from each guard you encounter before you have the opportunity to run away. The first couple times you encounter a guard, no big deal. But the more you explore, the more you'll have these encounters, and all they end up doing is slowing down your progress. And let me tell you, Atlantis is one of the areas where you'll likely have to backtrack quite a bit as you try to figure out what you need to do and where you have to use various items. The act of walking around the maze, which is slow, combined with having to avoid or engage with guards, which is unnecessary, other than one time technically, combined with having to backtrack to various locations in the maze, makes the whole experience a cumbersome design that grinds the game to a halt. Oh, and get ready to curse the world if you run out of a particular consumable resource late in the game, which requires even more backtracking through the same maze with those same guards. It is very frustrating. I really don't mean to be overly negative here. It's just that the pre-Atlantis portion of the game was so good and it felt so engaging that by the time you reach Atlantis, you want that feeling to continue or even perhaps crescendo. That just doesn't happen, and that's why, for me, the whole section of Atlantis is more boring than fun. I also have a bone to pick with the final encounter in the game, but because it might be too spoilerish, I'm not going to go into detail here. I'll just say, the whole thing comes down to a lot of guesswork and trial and error until you figure out the exact right path through the situation, which, from my perspective, could have been improved. Despite those critiques, though, Fate of Atlantis remains a playable, worthwhile experience. It's just not without some issues. So overall, how did it feel to play Atlantis? I 
honestly really enjoyed myself. I really enjoyed playing Fate of Atlantis. Every ounce of the experience prior to actually reaching Atlantis was a joy, and I particularly loved the fact that there were multiple paths through the game, and even in some instances, multiple solutions to certain puzzles. The game oozes Indiana Jones style and atmosphere, and I can't speak highly enough for about the first 75% of the game. That last 25% though, man, for me, is a bit rough. It's not enough to diminish the quality of the game up to that point, but it is enough to make the experience less amazing than it should have been. So what is our verdict? Where does Fate of Atlantis sit in the overall context of video and computer gaming history? I'm going to say that if Fate of Atlantis didn't actually include Atlantis, or that that sounds wrong, rather, if the Atlantis portion of the game was redesigned, I truly believe this game might be one of the best adventure games of all time. Unfortunately, though, that is not reality. That's not to say the game isn't a quality, engaging adventure title, because it is. It just doesn't quite reach the heights that I believe it had the ability to reach. Which is why, for me, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis is a solid addition to our collection of golden oldies. It is absolutely a game you should all play and any self-proclaimed adventure game aficionado needs to play the game at least once in their lives, if not multiple times, to see all of the paths through the game. But I would be lying if I claimed it didn't have some faults. Regardless, I still recommend you give it a go. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis might not be the best adventure game ever created, but it is still, undoubtedly, a golden oldie. was our episode on Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, recommendations for future episodes, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to keep up to date with what's going on with the podcast. We do lots of fun stuff out on the Discord server. We have games of the month. We have lots of discussions about future episodes or prior episodes. I have a whole roadmap of upcoming episodes posted out there. It's a good place just to gather and have the discussion. So if anybody is so inclined, that is probably the best spot to continue discussing and talking about the podcast. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including an exclusive podcast, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Conker's Bad Fur Day. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience, please let me know. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. 
This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, it means I'm doing something right. No, what it's really all about is making sure that I can get the feedback needed to make sure this is the best possible podcast I can make. We get new listeners every single day, which is amazing. I want to make sure that we continue to deliver the content that everybody finds interesting. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you to make sure that we don't have any gaps. I legitimately am interested and devoted to making this the best possible podcast I can, and I look forward to continuing to receive feedback from you, the community, on what you want to listen to. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Conker's Bad Fur Day. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>